to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, you'll pardon me, I have a, a little bit of a sore throat and cold tonight. I'm trying to get over here. Ephesians chapter 6, in chapter 5, verse number 18, Paul said, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's been the theme that we've been talking about for several weeks now. We've been discussing what it means to be filled with the Spirit and how the filling of the Spirit is demonstrated in our lives. There are two great institutions that God has given us. Uh, First of all, He gave us marriage, and then He gave us the church. And if God gave us just those two institutions specifically, then it should be apparent to us that uh, they would play out very prominently in God's economy and God's plan and purpose for the world. And it would seem logical to us that if those relationships that are involved in both marriage and family or marriage and family and the church are not what they should be, then that would adversely affect uh, our ability to be filled with the Spirit. The church, of course, is very important because the Scripture says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The church is the place charged with the responsibility of the propagation of the gospel. Uh, The church, the Bible says, is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the place where we receive strength and fellowship with fellow believers. And so that shows us that the church is very important to us. And, of course, it's essential that our church doctrine is correct. Likewise, we need to understand that uh, the family is all important and our relationships in the family need to be correct as well. Churches are made up of families and when families are weak, that means that we're going to have weak churches. So I don't think it's any accident at all as, as Paul goes through the scriptures here in Ephesians that he dovetails that teaching on the family right into this teaching that he gives us on the church. So we've been talking about family and church for the last few weeks, and that's very important to us. We've talked about the role of the wife, how she is to be in submission to her husband. She's to be her husband's helper. Uh, The husband is to love and care for his wife. He is supposed to treat her as an equal, and yet understanding that God has given him certain priorities and responsibilities that are different from what he's given to the wife. Then we've also talked about children, and children are to be obedient to their parents. And so you, you need to have all those relationships correct. And that really is, is what enables us to have so much joy in serving the Lord and, and having a family that knows the Lord Jesus Christ. And just having that type of family is just a tremendous blessing personally and also to the church. But we have one left, last area that we need to talk about as regards the immediate family. And that has to do with parents. And so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about parenting. Uh, Paul makes one simple statement in Ephesians 6, verse number 4. It's a a very simple statement, and yet uh, those of us who are parents find out that it's not so easy to implement. Easier said than done, as they say. So we're going to back up here to uh, verse number 1 of Ephesians 6 and begin reading there. If you'd stand with me, please. Our text verse is verse number 4. Ephesians 6, beginning with verse number 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, that thou mayest live long upon the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you 
might help us that we would learn the right things about parenting and we would be able to use these things in our families. And I just ask you, Lord, to help me as I preach this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Once again, in verse number four, Paul says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We have anybody here tonight who is a little bit puzzled about raising children? Anybody at all? Well, I would have to say that, well, of course, my children are mostly grown and all of them but one have left the house, even though he has grown, uh, Brother Dalton. He's still hanging around. Uh, But every one of us, when we come into the job of parenting, there is not one of us who comes in as an expert. Arguably, the most important job that was ever given to anybody in the world is the job of parenting, and yet there's none of us that comes into the job with any experience. I mean, we, we, we learn how to parent with on-the-job training. So sometimes when your kids look at you and they wonder, why are you so inconsistent in the things you do as a parent, then you just turn to your kids and tell them, well, have a little mercy on me. I, I'm, I'm just learning things as I go along. This is on-the-job training, and I don't know everything there is to know. Now, maybe you want to keep that a secret from your kids, but uh, really, that, that's, that's the way it is. And coming into the job with, without any experience, uh, all of us really have to do the same things that our parents did before us. I remember when our grandbaby Elisa was born, that uh, Clarissa called her mother, just like my wife called her mother when Clarissa was little. And she says, what do I do about these things? I mean, what do I do about she has swollen gums or she's got red spots all over or this and that? What do I do about that? And we, and we see that we really don't have any experience in it and we have to learn this thing as we go along. Well, the bad thing about it is that as you're raising kids, you find out that what you learn doesn't really last for very long. Because what you learned about taking care of a baby when it's first born, well, it's not long before that baby becomes a two-year-old. And you've never dealt with two-year-olds before. So you're starting again. You've got to deal with that terrible twos or whatever it is. Then they don't stay two-year-olds very long because it goes on and uh, soon it'll be time for them to go to school. And uh, you don't know how to deal with the issues that come up there. You learn as you go with that. And then, of course, finally they do become teenagers And no matter how long you live, you'll never learn how to deal with teenagers in the right way. So somewhere along the line there and all of that, uh, you even have more children. A second child comes along, a third child comes along, and you're thinking, wow, you know, uh, I've got the experience now, I know exactly what to do. But then you find out that no two children are alike. And so here you go again. You can't deal with one child like you do with the other, and you're still that inexperienced person. And if you're a parent, sometimes that is just enough to drive you crazy. I mean, you feel like you need to go to a psychiatrist sometimes when you're trying to deal with your children. Now, it's no wonder that Lino walks around all the time talking to himself. I mean... (laughs) Got five kids and they're all girls and he's prone to drool on himself a lot. So you understand why. So raising kids is a very difficult thing to do. And folks, this is exactly why we need the Lord's help. And how do I know this? Well, I know it because after 6,000 years of human history, we still haven't got the thing right. What do you do to try to get these kids to turn out right? And people who don't know Christ and people who don't read the Bible... 
and people who don't, who even if they are Christians and they have a Bible, they don't read it and apply the principles there. These are the people that are going to have the most trouble raising their kids in this world. So it's not so simple as we think. Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. A simple statement, but it's not so simple after all. You read the Old Testament... And you'll find variations of this statement, and all of us are familiar with it. Spare the rod and spoil the child. And you'll see that in variations in very, various different ways written throughout the Old Testament. Then you get to reading the New Testament, and you come to this scripture. It says, provoke not your children to wrath. And so somewhere between spare, don't spare the rod and don't provoke your children to wrath, somewhere in the middle there lies the answer to the, to the problem of raising children. So there, there is a way to do this. And parents, though, as they raise children, there are certain mistakes that are, that are made. Now, we're going to talk in, in the first two parts of the message tonight about mistakes that are made with, uh, with raising kids, with discipline, and with parents. Now, the first thing I want to talk to you about is the modern mistakes of discipline. And I call them modern mistakes because they really seem to be peculiar to the culture in which we live in today. But there are plenty of mistakes that have been made all throughout history. And really the modern mistakes, what we're experiencing right now, is sort of the backlash of the problems that have been created by those before us. Now, we're all familiar uh, with the statement, children are to be seen and not heard. Most of us have heard that. And really, that statement is one that would be made by the strict disciplinarian. That's the person who, who may beat their children into submission. They're, they're ones who really don't care for a child's feelings. When a child asks questions, they don't have the answers for them. And should they do something in disobedience, those are the kind of children that get beaten severely because they don't do what they're supposed to do. That kind of idea was really prevalent in the 19th century. You don't see so much of it today, but it was prevalent in the 19th century. But if you go all the way back to the time of Paul and uh, that, that in ancient Rome where he lived and, or in the ancient Roman Empire, that what Paul writes here in the book of Ephesians is really a radical statement. When he even deals with this issue of children and how to raise them, it is a radical statement. And that's because back in his day, children were considered to be not much more than just a simple possession of their parents. And so when a baby was born, uh, the father could make a decision about whether he wanted that baby or not. And very often, unhealthy babies were simply killed. And if the child or father decided that he didn't want the child, those children were sent to the public forums, and there they would be sold to, to be raised as slaves or prostitutes. Well, there's no way, of course, that we can defend, I don't think, 19th century feelings on raising children. And certainly we can't defend ancient Romans for the way that they raised their children. But today, uh, at least going back as far probably as about 1960s to the present time, attitudes about raising children began to change. And so rather than being the strict disciplinarians that you found in, in the 19th century, what parents began to do is to throw discipline completely out the window. And some people got the idea that the opposite of wrong discipline is no discipline at all. My daughter told me just recently that she works with someone who had decided that this is what they would do with their kids. They just decided we're going to stop all discipline. We're going to let the kids do what they want because we don't want to injure the expression of those little personalities. 
And so they stop disciplining. Well, the opposite of wrong discipline is not no discipline. The answer, the opposite, is right discipline. Now, let me give you some modern mistakes about discipline. The first one is this. The first mistake is punishment is out and reward is in. We've come up with the idea today of positive reinforcement rather than ex- to, or to the exclusion of, of corporal punishment. Today, we've made the decision that what we really want to do is we want to reward kids for being good and we don't want to punish them when they're bad. And many parents have the idea that to spank a child or to inflict any kind of physical pain upon a child, well, that that would simply be barbaric. Totally wrong to do that. And so that idea of disciplining children that way has really become reflective of all the way, uh, of all the types of discipline that we experience in society. Today, we don't think anymore in terms of justice. We don't think about righteousness and, and about truth. But instead, we've replaced that with terms like peace and harmony, happiness and tolerance. And so to punish someone, we think, is to repress them. That's to be controlling of them. And so we're told that we should never repress the, the expressions of a child. We should never try to control the child. But we're let to let that child just express himself in any way that he wants. And if that expression turns out to be the wrong kind of behavior, well, it's really not wrong at all because we don't have any absolutes any longer. I mean, what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. And so we just let kids do what they want and just express themselves. And the sad thing about this is that many times that's passed off as being Christian. People that aren't Christians and have no idea what a Christian is are telling us that this is the way that Christians ought to act. And so we got the thing mixed up here and we think that that's what Christians are supposed to do. Just throw out discipline because we don't want to repress people and, and we don't want to injure their personalities. We want to express themselves as freely as they can. Well, I want to tell you what Christians are supposed to do. The Bible teaches us that we are to apply principles of Scripture to our everyday living. And certainly that means in the area of child raising. So if the Bible teaches us that there ought to be punishment, then there ought to be punishment. Now, we flip the whole thing around, though. And so we say, don't punish the bad behavior, reward the good behavior. And, of course, there, there is some value to that. I wouldn't deny it. Uh, you need to encourage people, encourage kids, all of us need some kind of encouragement now and then. But to reward to the exclusion of punishment is not right. Today, we experience things in discipline like, like time out. If kids are bad, let's put the kids in time out. Unfortunately, the government has so defanged our school system today and, and discipline that you, you have to use things like that. But I would tell you that if you're a parent... And you regularly use things like time out instead of spanking your children, you're going to end up with misbehaving children. That's not a biblical principle. The Bible says that it's all right to spank your children. It says not to spare the rod. And of course, that means you're not supposed to abuse a child. Uh, but the Bible does not speak anywhere about using, not using pain as a deterrent for bad actions. We need to punish But it's not really so much the idea, I don't think, of using time out. It's really the idea that we can't punish at all. We've decided we just can't punish kids anymore. I understand, uh, someone may correct me on this. I'm going to make a statement, but I think it's true. That even in here in our own school, 
that we, we did things like, like we tell kids that you have to write sentences. I mean, uh, I, I will not disrupt my class. And you'd, you'd, you'd make the kid write this, this sentence out 100 times, 500 times. But we came to the place, well, kids really don't like to do that. So we don't do that anymore. And so instead, what we decided to do and what I've been told and at, at various times is that what we really need to do is to reward them for their good behavior. In other words, let's give them a sucker if they do what's right or something like that, and we'll just reward them for good behavior rather than punish them, punishing them for bad behavior. Now, let me tell you what I think about that. To entice kids to do what's right by bribing them is totally the wrong thing to do. Whatever happened to people just doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I mean, you raise your kids that there's right and wrong, and I don't have to be rewarded for doing the right thing. This is what's expected of me. This is what it means to be a good citizen, what it means to get along with people. I just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And the problem here, the real suckers in this whole thing, the suckers are the parents, And the suckers are the school administrators who tried to reverse that thing and say we're not going to punish anymore. Now, here's the whole problem with it all. The whole problem is human nature. People are depraved, and you can't appeal to the goodness of human nature to teach people to do what's right. And the reason is the human nature is basically bad. And it's a mistake for us to try to appeal to the human nature by using the goodness of man and think that it's going to correct a person for the things that they do wrong. You can't correct people simply by providing positive examples for them and think that that's all that they need. It won't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because the premise is wrong. The nature is bad. So you can't appeal to the human nature to do what's right. And that's one of the reasons why you have to have punishment. Now, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. And what happens is when you try to appeal to the good nature in people, you will get taken advantage of. Now, you think about kids who even do have some types of punishment in their homes. What do kids do? they learn exactly what buttons they can push. And they learn exactly how hard they can push those buttons before they'll get punished. Now, you take a kid has no punishment at all. What do you think that he's going to do? He's going to take advantage of everybody. So that's a mistake, taking away punishment and rewarding for good behavior. Reward, it's good in some senses, in some sense, reward for good behavior, but don't take away punishment. The second thing is that all punishment is reformatory rather than punitive. And so our idea is, or the thought is, that that if we do have to punish, this is not punitive, but we're doing this in order to reform. So essentially, People believe that that bad behavior is not a product of human nature. And if a child is rebellious, what he really needs is a psychiatrist. I had this happen just recently. Uh, Someone, I I don't want want to uh, explain it too well because you know who I was talking about too easily. But there's a person that I know and you know this person too. Uh, they're not in the church right now, but, I, but they contacted me about problems with kids. And they take a kid to the psychiatrist. And so this is what our reaction to things. I mean, if a kid starts acting bad, let's go get the insurance forms. And let's get them down to the psychiatrist as quick as we can to try to get things worked out in their brain just because they've misbehaved. Well, what is the basis for thinking that discipline is not to be punitive? Well, really... 
It's based in a huge mistake in theology. We come to the uh, New Testament, and all of a sudden people think that we have a completely different God than we had in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is a God of justice and God was punishing. But then when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is somebody with a flower behind his ear and he's teaching love and he throws out punitive discipline and he says, we don't live that way anymore. Now you're living under grace. You no longer live under the law and we act as if the law was no longer good for us. Well, actually... What people have done when they get that opinion of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, they've missed a very major thing, and that's the meaning of Christ's atonement. Now, maybe you don't understand this, but the atonement of Christ is based in retributive justice. Now, retributive justice simply means that for for every offense that is committed, there must be a corresponding punishment. And this punishment has nothing at all to do with reformation. It has to do with punitive justice. Christ's suffering on the cross was real punishment for sin so that Christ had to suffer correspondingly for every sin that God forgave. Now, one reason that I don't believe in universal atonement is because if universal atonement is true, then that means that all sins have been paid for, that there's no reason for anyone to go to hell because all sins in the world have already been paid for. And you don't punish someone twice for the same sin. Well, I don't believe in that because when Christ went to the cross, he paid for the sins of those who would actually be in heaven. Christ took their punishment and his, his taking their punishment was actual satisfaction to God for the crimes that they had committed. And so Christ actually did satisfy God for sin. And so Christ becomes the substitute. And there's only one way that you can have true substitution. And that is if you have one-to-one correspondence for sins committed and sins forgiven. Well, the principle then of, of the atonement concerning sins is one of punitive justice. Well, if you take that and you apply it to child-rearing, well, it's true that a child might get some reformatory uh, benefits out of, out of, uh, of uh, punishment, but the purpose of punishment is not mainly to be reformatory. So punishment is because of misbehavior. It's simply because it's wrong, and when you do something that's wrong, you deserve punishment for that. Now, to think of it in any other terms is not to understand the biblical perspective of this punishment. Now, let's move on here because there are some more mistakes that are made. We've just talked about, really, the things we've just been talking about are matters of principle in in punishment and discipline. But next, I want to talk about the multiple mistakes of parents. Now, Paul says here, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. And there, the original word for fathers is a word that usually means the male parent. But sometimes in the scriptures, that word is applied uh, to, both, to both of the parents. And I think that what Paul is trying to get across here truly is that he includes both of the parents in this. Well, what is he talking about when he says, don't provoke them to wrath? Well, I believe what he's speaking about is that we need to avoid things that build up resentment in our children. Now, obviously, he's not talking about spanking because that's a biblical principle. But he's talking about doing things in a repeated fashion that eventually it causes resentment in the child. And that resentment spills over into open hostility. So there are a few things that that I think that Paul may have in mind when he's talking about not provoking your children to wrath. So we're going to list a few things here tonight. The first one is overprotection. 
There are some parents who think, well, I have to establish a deep emotional bond with my children, and I'm going to smother them with all the love and protection that I can give them. And so this is the kind of parent who will never let their kids out of their sight. Uh, This is a parent that never lets a kid do anything on his own. They're always afraid that the kid's going to get a scratch or they're going to be exposed to something that's unpleasant. And so they never come to the place where they trust their children and they never let children begin to make their, their own decisions. Well, as children grow up, they really need to learn how to start making decisions on their own. And, of course, that's subject to their maturity levels. But they need to start learning how to make their own decisions. And when you take a parent who's always questioning the child and never lets the child do anything on his own, that parent is going to end up with introverted children. And so you hear uh, parents all the time that say, well, I'm just too protective of my children to allow them to do that. And they say, I'm overprotective. Well, when a parent says, I'm overprotective, that is an admission of wrongdoing. Because overprotection means I give them too much protection. And children will begin to resent that if you don't allow them to have a little bit of freedom. So eventually, that overprotection causes resentment. Then the second thing is overachievement. And what I mean by overachievement is when a parent begins to project unreasonable goals upon their children. Rather than having children that set some of their own goals... The parents have the goal that they think the child ought to admit and they push uh, or to reach and they push that child continually and continually and continually until they reach the goals that the parents want them to reach. Now that comes in a lot of different forms. Sometimes you'll see it where a father will um, want, want, a, want a, uh, his son, for instance, to be the star quarterback on the football team or he'll push him to be the forward that scores 30 points every night. And then you have uh, mothers who who, uh, want their daughters to be drama queens and the beauty pageant winners. Sometimes they do it with cheerleading. And they constantly push and push and push to try to get the child to overachieve. And what the child gets the sense is, is that if I don't make this goal that my parents have for me, then my parents are displeased with me and I can never do anything that's good enough for them. But both parents also do it sometimes in the area of academics. I think all of us want to turn out smart children, and we want our children to excel in school. But if a child uh, does the best that he can, and he doesn't make straight A's, and he doesn't make the honor roll every, every, uh, every grading period, he doesn't have the highest grade in the class, then what a parent ought to do is to commend the child for what they can do. Don't keep pushing for a goal that they can't, keep pushing for a goal that they can't attain. Now, what happens here with with parents who do this is that eventually the child's going to get older, of course, and it's time for that child to leave the home. And when that child gets ready to go, he is glad to go because nobody in their home ever made them feel anything but a failure. They never could please their parents. The third thing is undue favoritism. And uh, the best example, I think, we have of undue favoritism in the Bible would be the example of Joseph. Joseph was his father Jacob's favorite son. Jacob knew that. Joseph's brothers knew it. And Joseph knew it. And you know what happened? It caused resentment among Joseph's brothers. And what happened? Well, they hatched a plot against him that they were going to kill him. They decided against that. And then they eventually sold him into slavery. Well, you would think that, well, Jacob should have learned his lesson from that. But Jacob didn't. 
All that he did was transfer his favoritism over to his other son, Benjamin. And if, but by the grace of God, the very same thing could have happened to Benjamin. Well, sometimes I know it's hard for parents not to have favorites. I mean, when you have a child that excels in one way and one that you think is extra good and does extra, you know, just, just does really well, it's hard not to show favoritism sometime for that child. Well, if you do favor a child in your own mind, don't ever let the children know that. That's very harmful to children. And I would say this to those of you that are grandparents and you have more than one grandchild. Be careful as grandparents that you don't show favoritism to one over the other. Because what will happen is that those kids feel that. They know it. And they're going to be very resentful of that. And what happens sometimes too is you find this out. That when you show more favoritism towards one than the other. When they get a little bit older. They also choose their favorite parent. That happens sometimes. Fourth thing is inconsistency with discipline and love. Applying discipline uh, to one child in one way and to another child in another way using unequal discipline will cause resentment. Now, most of us, you, you may have grown up with a, with a younger sibling perhaps and you thought that mom and dad favored that child more than they favored me. When we were growing up, my, my older brother and sister always complained. They, mom and dad used to wail the tar out of them, but they'd say to me, but they let you, Nyla, they let you go. You could do anything that you wanted to do. I remember when I was about four or five years old, my brother was uh, sitting on the, on the couch at home and he had his head laid back on the back of the couch like this. And I came up with a broomstick and I went, wham, right across the Adam's apple as hard as I could. My brother got up holding his throat and choking and about to kill me. And my mom walks into the room a little bit late. And she says, Sherman, stop that. Leave him alone. You know what I'm talking about? My girls always complained that when they were young, they were always in trouble. But Nathan came along and all we did was we patted Nathan on the head and told him, what a good boy you are, Nathan. What a good boy. Well, you have to be careful because when you show, uh, when you discipline differently one child than you do to another, it will cause resentment. But also you find this to be true, that if you love them wrongly, it also causes resentment. In other words, if you act like you love one child more or you act like when you discipline them, that uh, you're displeased with them, they can begin to sense that. I I mean displeased in this way, that mom and dad don't love me anymore because I messed up. You have to be careful with that. Now, we know this, that God loves us with a love that's unconditional. And if we're going to pattern our love after the way that God loves, then when a child disobeys and does the wrong thing, you don't stop loving the child. You don't treat them like you don't love them. What happens is sometimes you lose the fellowship for a while and you use the communal relationship, but the parent relationship of love for child, that cannot change. And it doesn't make any difference what happens to that child in later years or whatever. I mean, sometimes you have to do this. Children just disobey and and dishonor you so much that you end up having to turn that child loose, uh, so to speak, and, and you can't have fellowship with them, but you never stop loving them. That relationship is always there. It will always be there, just like the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. So you may have to stop fellowship. Unfortunately, sometimes that happens, but you can't stop loving those kids. Now, the fifth thing is physical and verbal abuse. Now, physical abuse, I think, goes without saying. 
Because battering a child and, and beating a child and bruising them, that, that wouldn't be acceptable under any circumstances. And this is why parents need to be very careful that you don't lose your temper when you discipline a child. Never discipline them out of anger because you can end up spanking them too hard, hurting them, bruising them, and causing a real severe damage. And so that, that's never, never something that, that you ought to do. Step back if you're angry. Take a little bit of time before you punish a child. One of the things we find about human parents is uh, that we treat our children sometimes in a way that animals would never treat their own. Sometimes we're worse than an animal. Of course, for the ones that, aside from the ones that eat their young, now they're a little bit worse, perhaps. But uh, most animals would not treat their offspring the way that parents today, uh, many parents treat their offspring. So it's never right to abuse a child in that way. I remember when we were uh, back in Kentucky and I was working uh, uh, bus routes there for our church, there were a lot of inner city kids that we used to pick up. And I saw a lot of child abuse in those days. And, and it's so unfortunate, it's so terrible that people would get involved with that. But you know, there are, there are Christian parents who would never think about abusing their child physically, and yet they will abuse their children verbally. And what I mean is they're, they're always yelling at the children. They berate them. They scream at them. They tell their kids they're no good. Every time they open their mouth, they use some kind of sarcasm to put them down. That causes resentment in a child. Continued verbal abuse will cause resentment. And no matter what you do on the, on the good side, when you talk good things to them, what that child always hears and what they always know is the bad side of things. And that's the thing that they remember about you. So these are all common mistakes that, that parents make. And perhaps these are some of the things that Paul had in mind when he says, don't provoke your children to wrath. So he starts off this scripture, uh, Ephesians 6, verse number 4. He starts off with a negative, but then he ends the verse on a positive. So let's finish with this, the proper motivation for parents. Provoke not your children to wrath, he says, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So bring them up, he says. And what that really means is to use proper discipline and instruction. Now, sometimes when we hear this word discipline, what we really think, discipline in our minds means punishment. And that's all we think. You're going to discipline someone, you're going to punish them. That's not even what the word means. What the word really means is rules of conduct. It means instruction. And so if there's a parent who says, well, I don't discipline my children, what they're saying is, I don't teach them anything. I don't instruct my children. Proverbs contains a command that's, that's sort of the consternation of many parents. In Proverbs 22, verse 6, it says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's caused a lot of Christian parents very serious problems because they don't understand what this verse is really trying to teach. Now, here's the fact. Sometimes kids don't turn out right, and it may not be your fault. And you say, well, how can that be? Because the verse says, train up a child and when he's old, he'll not, not depart from it. Well, there's one thing that we have to remember. And that is every single person born into the world has a sinful nature. And unless that sinful nature is taken care of, there is nobody that's going to turn out right. Now, you may try all that, you, all that you do, but that kid just simply will not do what they're supposed to do. Well, an example of, of good parents that had a child that turned out the wrong way... All we have to do is go all the way back to the very first set of parents, Adam and Eve. They had a child that didn't turn out right. Now think about Adam and Eve. They were 
as close to being perfect parents as you could possibly be. Now, of course, they were sinners. Uh, after, after the fall, they were sinners. But they hadn't experienced all the things that we experience today. There weren't any other people around them to influence them. There weren't any people around to influence their children. And so they were as close to perfection, far more, far closer to perfection than we'd ever think about being. And yet what happened to their very first son? Their first son, Cain, turned out to be a murderer. Well, can we say that Adam and Eve were bad parents? Well, I don't think so. Abel turned out all right. Abel brought a sacrifice to God, exactly what he was supposed to do. He trusted the Lord. Uh, they had another son by the name of Seth. He did the same thing. He was a godly person, but Cain turned out wrong. Now, I don't think that that was Adam and Eve's fault. Sometimes kids turn out wrong. But if we look at this scripture here, we ought not to think because sometimes kids turn out wrong that it's not sometimes our fault because probably more often than not, it can be or, or is our fault that our kids do turn out wrong. Now, Proverbs 2, 6, 22, 6 says that, that God has promised this, or it's a statement of promise. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And Charles Bridges, in his commentary on this verse, he makes the statement that when we fail as parents, we really need to go back and survey the situation and find out, did we in fact? do everything that we could possibly do to help that child to succeed. And very often we'll find out, no, there's some lapses. There's some things that we didn't do right. We didn't teach them properly. We didn't bring them to church as, as often as we should. We didn't work with them as often as we should. We, we failed somewhere in this because the Bible says this is a promise. You train up the child and he's young and, and, and he's going to turn out right. Now, here's the thing, though. If there's any, I don't know if there's anybody here tonight that, that's not saved. But if, if you're not saved and you say, well, uh, I have an excuse for all of this. I have an excuse because my parents didn't raise me right. I have an excuse because my parents never went to church and they never loved God and they, always, they were alcoholics. They, they cursed all the time or whatever. That is not an excuse for you. The Bible doesn't say that God commands people who come from good families to repent and trust him. The Bible says God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so it's the responsibility of every person, no matter what kind of background that you have, to trust the Lord, repent of your sins, and trust Jesus Christ. But what we've done today is that we think that some types of behavior are excusable. We can understand why this person acts out the way they do. We can understand why they're thieves or robbers or drunkards or whatever. And we give them excuse and think it's all right because they have an excuse. It's not all right. Sin is sin. And no matter what kind of background you came from, God is always going to punish sin. Now, let me make a couple of statements here. We'll be through tonight uh, as we talk about... Um, we think about the ideas of proper motives for parents. The first statement is that we are custodians of God's gift. Even though we have children and we raise children, children do not belong to us. Our children belong to God. And what God has done, he's entrusted us with those children in their formative years to try to raise them in the way that they should be raised and teach them the principles that they need to know. And if you're a parent who believes that your business is more important than your children, you're a bad parent. And if you're a parent who thinks that fun and recreation, those things are more important than the way I raise my kid, you're a bad parent. 
The Bible teaches us that you are responsible for your children to watch for their souls. A parent who doesn't bring their kids to church and thinks that church is not important, who doesn't think that Bible reading and prayer are important, no matter what else that you may do for that child, buy them all the nice clothes that you can buy them, give them all the advantages in life that you want to give them, give them money, give them opportunities, it doesn't matter. If you don't care for their soul, you are a failure as a parent. I've asked parents before about their children, and I would say, is your child saved? And I know Christian parents who say, I don't know. And you might be confused about the salvation of a child when they're right around those, those uh, uh, ages of accountability, around the age of accountability. You, you may be a little bit confused about whether that child has actually come to know the Lord. But you can't stay that way. If you've got a child that you don't know whether they're saved, you need to find out. You need to deal with that because it's your responsibility to watch for that child's soul. Now, the next thing is... We must cultivate the whole personality. In this verse, the word nurture uh, has to do with the whole well-being of the child. And it has reference to his actions. It means his discipline. It means his whole upbringing. It means his mind, his spirits, his morals, his behavior. All of that is involved in the word nurture. Then Paul also uses the word admonition. And what that has to do is with the words that you speak to the child, the encouragement that you give the child. It has to do with instilling your values in that child, teaching them uh, the the right kinds of things to do and and what your positions are in particular matters. It involves teaching the child the Bible and defining for the child the principles of right and wrong. Well, many parents are really more concerned about whether the child grows up to be a doctor whether they're going to be lawyers. They're concerned about how much money that child's going to make. Are they going to be wealthy? Will they be famous? Will they have a position in the world? And they don't care very much at all for the spiritual upbringing. And so they begin to neglect the spiritual spiritual matters that that child needs to pay attention to. But to be a godly, spirit-filled parent, you have to respect every aspect of that child's life. And the most important thing that you can do is to consider their relationship with the Lord before you worry about their relationship with the world. Now, on Wednesday nights, I've noticed that there are some parents who leave their children at home. Because we don't have a Wednesday night kids program, parents won't bring their kids to church. I would tell you this, if your child is big enough to sit up and listen in a kindergarten class... And big enough to sit up and listen in school, that child is big enough to sit up and listen in this church service right here. Now, they may not, they may not get the whole picture of everything that's going on, but those kids can learn. And the living proof is right here. I started out with no kids programs when I was a kid. I never even heard of a kids program except Sunday school. And we sat in church every time the word was preached and we listened to that. And I grew by that. I knew things and I learned things by that. Now, I'm saying if if your kids are big enough to to sit up in church, they're big enough to learn how to behave in church. But you know why most parents won't do that? They won't do it because it's not enough fun for their kids. They don't want to be the mean parent who makes their kids come to church and sit in the service and behave because they're not having enough fun. There's not all kinds of things to do, not all kinds of things of going on, going on. And so what do parents do? They leave their kids at home, they let them watch TV, or they play games with them, or whatever it is. 
And what they're teaching their kids is it's not so important to be in church. It's not really all that important. And consequently, there are many kids that they get up to 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, and they couldn't come and sit in the church because they haven't learned how to behave yet. They can't sit there and listen. Well, here's the thing about it. Folks, I love kids' programs. I think it's one of the greatest things that we've ever put in churches. But I also tell you this, kids' programs has also been some of the worst things that we've ever put in church. And that's because parents have stopped teaching their kids how to behave in church because they want them to be over here having some kind of fun and some kind of activity going on. And so if you don't have the fun program, they don't want to bring the kids to church. Well, that is starting your kids out wrong. Don't worry about being the mean parent. Be worry about being the right kind of parent who teaches your kids that they need to come to church and, and be a part of what's going on here. But the thing about this is there are many parents who choose their church based on the kids' program. That doesn't make any difference whether the pastor knows anything about the Bible. Does he preach the truth from the Word of God? That doesn't matter. Do they have a kids' program? And they choose their church by that. And so, because we don't have kids' program on Wednesday night, you see, we don't have a lot of kids that come on Wednesday night. Well, I'm not opposed to having kids sit in the auditorium, and we'll learn how to deal with that. If, and, and, and I, I, you know, I, I'm going to say it right now. I don't think I ever want to have a kids' program on Wednesday night. I think it's time to teach your kids to come to church and sit in here. So here's what we need to do. We need to start cultivating the whole personality of the child. When you leave the kids at home, you're teaching them church is boring. You don't want them to come because they're going to be bored if they sit in church. Stop worrying about that. Cultivate their whole personality. So the modern way of, of raising kids today, well, kids rule the roost. Kids don't want to go to church. The family doesn't go to church. Everybody stays home. So parents don't think enough about their kids spiritually, I guess. And they think home's a better place to be on a Wednesday night than it is to be in God's house. Well, here's the thing, folks. So many parents are concerned about, am I my kid's buddy? Am I my kid's best pal? Am I his friend? And rather, am I his mentor? And that's what we've got to stop doing. Start considering we need to be the child's mentor and not their best friend. They don't need friends. They got plenty of friends. They need a parent who teaches them what they're supposed to do. Now, let me close with a lesson with this thought tonight. Very simply, this last statement, our kids belong to God. So stop acting like your kids are only yours. Those kids belong to God. And when you learn that, you'll learn to give them the proper support that they need to learn the word of God at home and to learn it in their church. And you'll be giving them the proper attention that they need when you understand this child is mine, but more importantly, this child belongs to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to come together tonight. Lord, we just pray that you might take the feeble presentation and we apologize for that and just ask, Lord, that you would use the words that are spoken tonight to help some parent here. We pray, Lord, we might raise our kids in the right way, that we might be instructive parents and bring them up in the fear, nourishment, and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.